You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Useless information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. The story that you're about to hear, which is titled Samuel Resnick Buys His Own Murder, was the last episode of Season 3 of this podcast. It was first released on December 7th of 2010. Now, I tend to shy away from true crime stories, but every once in a while, one comes along that catches my attention. And this is the obscure and quite unusual story of Albany, New York jeweler Samuel Resnick, who hired some men to kill him. But the craziest part of the story is that the police were already aware of his attempts to hire someone to carry out the dirty deed, yet they did little to stop it. Well, enough of me blabbing on. Let's roll the tape. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side history. My name is Steve Silman, and today's story is titled, Samuel Resnick Buys His Own Death. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. And for today's question of the day, I thought I would ask you about a product that is commonly found in just about everyone's home, including mine, and that is Formica brand plastic laminate. You know, Formica, that stuff that they make the countertops out of. Some of it's really ugly, and actually a lot of the newer stuff is really beautiful. Now, it may be the best-known plastic laminate, uh, but when it was introduced back in 1913, it had a totally different purpose. And my question for you today is, what was the original purpose of Formica? Was it one, to replace ceramic bathroom shower tiles? Two, to replace linoleum flooring? Three, to replace billiard balls? Or four, to replace electrical insulation? Again, what was the original purpose of Formica? Was it one, to replace ceramic bathroom shower tiles? Two, to replace linoleum flooring? Three, to replace billiard balls? Or four, to replace electrical insulation? And as always, I will let you ponder over this question and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. And now for today's story that I've titled Samuel Resnick Buys His Own Death. Now, as I've probably mentioned in previous podcasts, I live on the outskirts of Albany, New York. And for that reason, today's story is one that initially grabbed my attention simply because it involves a former Albany, New York jeweler named Samuel Resnick, the subject of the story. After researching it a bit more, I realized that I had stumbled upon a long-forgotten yet very, at least in my mind, a very unusual story from the early 1960s. So let's do the time warp back to March 4th, 1962. That's actually a little bit before I was born. And here we find an unnamed real estate agent who was out for a morning ride on his horse when he made a grisly discovery. Lying next to a little traveled dirt road about 10 miles north of Phoenix, Arizona, was the lifeless body of 61-year-old Samuel Resnick. 
he found the dead body. Now, Resnick's wife said that the retired jeweler had gone out for a walk after dinner on the 1st. That was a few days earlier, but he never returned. Now, investigators initially determined that he had been kidnapped, his body beaten, strangled, and robbed of about $6,000 worth of jewelry. You know, if you have that much jewelry on you, chances are you're looking for some trouble. Anyway, an autopsy uh, determined that the cause of death was strangulation by rope. And this is where the story takes a really strange turn because it was revealed that police knew all about the murder long before any crime was ever committed. Believe it or not, not one, not two, but three different men had previously called the police to let them know that Resnick was seeking to hire someone to kill him. One of the calls to the local sheriff's department spoke to a sergeant, but the officer dismissed the call as just plain ludicrous and simply referred him on to the Phoenix City Police Department. So the caller contacted the Phoenix uh, City Police Department, but they also thought that he was a bit of a crackpot and they didn't pursue it any further. And even if it was true, they couldn't do anything about it. That's because Resnick would surely deny the claim, and at that point, no crime had been committed, so they couldn't charge anybody with anything. Now, another caller mentioned that Resnick was answering the situation's wanted classified ads in the newspaper, in particular, those that indicated they would do any type of work. So the police wondered, could Sam really have interpreted any kind of work to mean anything, including murder? So they decided to follow up on the ads in that classified section, and this led them to a guy named Clemmy Jackson, who had just moved to Phoenix from Crockett, Texas, in search of work, hence the ad in the paper. Now, Clemmy was staying with his brother R.E., that's his initials, R.E., uh, in all the articles that I read, I couldn't find out what that, is, what that stood for. Anyway, Clemmy was staying with his brother R.E., uh, and the police went to visit them and found a car owned by their uncle. And inside the car was a length of rope that could have been used in the murder. As a result, five young men were arrested shortly thereafter. Arrested were Clemmy Jackson, of course, age 19, and his brother R.E., who was 21, along with Ernest Spurlock, who is age 29, John Henry Lewis Jones, age 21, and Jesse Tillis, age 19. Now, one would think that five men would tell five totally different stories, but they were all remarkably similar. Not only did they all admit to committing the murder, they all made the same exact claim as the earlier callers that Resnick had hired them to bump him off. So here is their version of the facts in the case. Resnick had contacted the younger Jackson, that's Clemmy, on February 25th, a few days before the murder. Clem had run an ad that started with service attendant or anything else. Um, Resnick offered Clem $6,000 in jewelry and another $200 in cash to murder him. Sam claimed that he'd been dying from incurable cancer and heart disease. He had both of those. And he was, in un he was in unbearable pain, and he wanted to end his life. But he needed to make it look like murder so that his wife could collect $50,000 in life insurance. Now, Clem was just stunned, and he left. But Resnick called him again later that night, but again, Clem turned him down. But on the other hand, his brother R.E., who he had been staying with, was interested and sent Clem back to find out more information. Resnick requested that he be shot in the head from a speeding car, 
but none of the guys owned a gun. In fact, none had even fired a weapon. So it was arranged that Resnick would take a walk right after dinner on March 1st. That's the last time his wife saw him. And he climbed into a 1952 Studebaker with uh, R.E. and the three other men that were arrested. Clemia wasn't there. They drove out to the desert location where you know the, his body was ultimately found. So here's how they did it. With two men on either side, they looped an ordinary clothesline rope around Resnick's neck and pulled. Uh, they must have you know, had really crummy rope because it snapped almost immediately. So Resnick then doubled up the rope and explained how it should be done. And then the four guys, you know, two on either side, pulled for two or three minutes until Resnick fell forward on his face. It was prearranged that they should make it look like a robbery, and they did, did that by turning his pockets inside out. And they took his jewelry, which consisted of several diamond rings and a watch, but they never got the $200 that Resnick had promised. Now, this was the only part of the story that varied among them because they found somewhere between 25 and 80 cents in his possession, you know, a very trivial difference. R.E. Jackson led a sheriff's officer to the backyard of his home to show the officer where he had buried the missing jewelry. But as soon as he handed over the loot, he just ran. And for fear of uh, hitting innocent bystanders, the police fired no shots, um, but of course they caught him shortly after that. Now, at a preliminary hearing, medical authorities made a really shocking announcement. They said that they found no sign of cancer, no sign of heart disease. There was really nothing unusual for a man of Resnick's age. The trial began in late June, and confessions from four of the five men uh, who were accused were read to the jurors. But the judge would not initially allow the last confession, which was signed by John Henry Lewis Jones, to be read because he was illiterate, um, but it was later allowed. The attorneys for the accused claimed that Resnick was a willing victim and that there was absolutely no evidence of malice or willful intent. Yet, in the eyes of the law, whether Resnick wanted to be killed or not, it really made no difference in the case. It was still premeditated murder and all five faced a possible death sentence for the crime. During the trial, a retired Air Force sergeant named James O'Grady testified that Resnick responded to his October 29th classified ad and insisted that he go to Resnick's home. There, Resnick told O'Grady that he had incurable cancer and his wife would get double indemnity on the insurance. That's $100,000 instead of the $50,000 if he was murdered. Of course, O'Grady turned down the offer. Then a Phoenix truck driver named Alfred Schroeder testified that he had advertised in the same paper that he would do anything legal for a thousand bucks. So Resnick asked him to shoot him in the back of his neck in exchange for three diamond rings. Schroeder instead reported it to the local sheriff's office. Even Resnick's barber, a guy named Floyd Musgrave, testified that Sam wanted him to slice his throat with a razor. Ouch. Um, but when Floyd refused, uh, you know, Resnick asked the barber to find someone else to kill him. But again, the barber said no. After 19 days of trial and another 19 hours of deliberation, the eight-woman, four-man jury returned their verdicts. Clemmy Jackson, that's the guy who didn't actually participate in the murder, you know, the go-between, he was found innocent and set free. But the remaining four were all found guilty of murder in the first degree and sentenced to life imprisonment. 
As you'd expect, since his death was not an accident, Lloyds of London did not have to pay a single penny on the life insurance policy. But that wasn't the end of the story. The jewelry that Resnick offered as payment for his killing became the subject of a legal tug-of-war. It seems that R.E. Jackson, who was one of the murderers, gave the jewelry to his lawyer, Frank Gibson, as payment for his services. And since, and since Resnick gave R.E. the jewelry, uh, Gibson claimed that it was his to keep. But Mrs. Resnick and her son Martin felt that they were entitled to it. So on April 26, 1966, which is more than four years after the murder, the court ordered the return of the jewels to the Resnick family. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. Did you know it was Alice Jocelyn all the time? Then it ought to be the easiest thing in the world for you to write down three reasons why Phil Coe, the famous girl detective, suspected Alice too. It certainly pays to listen carefully to every one of the Philco Radio Mystery programs. $50,000 in cash prizes in this easy, spectacular contest. Huge weekly prizes, mammoth grand prizes, just for answering the contest questions asked in Philco Radio Mystery Book Number 2. Of course, you have your copy. If you haven't, get it now from your Philco Radio Tube dealer. It's free, nothing to buy. And you must have this book to enter the contest. It contains the official entry blanks on which you must write your answers. Listen to Philco Radio Mysteries every week at this same time over this same station. Don't miss one of them. Don't miss any detail of any program either. Have Philco Radio Tubes in your set so that reception will be clear and good. 
Names of the major winners in this week's contest will be broadcast as soon as possible on a following Philco Mystery Program. Next week, another chance to win your share of the $50,000 cash prizes in this mammoth radio contest. Next week, another Philco Mystery Program. Next week, at this same time over this station, hear Phil Coe, the girl detective, solve the double X mystery. That commercial's from the February 16th, 1936 episode of the Philco Radio Mystery Program, whose main character was a woman named Phil Coe. That's two words. And she was supposedly the famous girl detective, at least on radio. That particular episode was titled Murder on the High Seas, and the show was sponsored by Philco Radio Tubes, hence the program and the character name. Now, they do mention the Philco Mystery Book, each of which covered four of the weekly adventures that were broadcast. Each story was given two pages in the book, which also contained an entry blank, clues, and a diagram. Philco, which, uh, which was the brand name for Philadelphia Storage Battery Company, is really hardly known today, but at one time it was the largest manufacturer of radios, and that's between 1930 and, and the mid-1950s. Now, around the time of this episode, Philco sold their 10 millionth radio set, and that's quite a feat since they were a very late entry into the market, having produced their first radio set just 10 years prior. By 1954, they had sold over 30 million radios, and Ford purchased the company in 1961 and eventually phased out the Philco name. I happen to own two of their 1940 console sets, and I have to tell you, they are just fantastic. The woodwork, the styling, and they work. Honestly, nothing is made like that today. And now for a few totally useless, yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for like to call News of the Weird Past. And our first tidbit dates back to uh, July 21st, 1936, where it's reported that the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with the judgment of the Los Angeles District Court. And it seems that a guy named F.R. Hinman and, a, and another person named Nanny Hinman, who I assume were husband and wife, owned 72 and a half acres of land near Burbank, California, and were suing both United Airlines and Pacific Air Transport for $180,000 in damages. So you have to wonder what these two airlines do wrong. Well, the Hinmans felt that they were trespassing by flying their planes overhead. The Hinmans argued that they not only owned their land, but the rights of the air over the land, at least to a height of about 150 feet. Now, keep in mind that this was during the early days of flight. So winning court by the Hinmans could have spelt a, you know, a really big financial disaster for the airlines. Now, as you can probably guess, the Hinmans lost the case, and the courts ruled, there's a quote, the sky has no definite location, and the air, like the sea by its nature, is incapable of private ownership. And that's the end of the quote. Our second tidbit dates back to November 1st, 1948, which reported that 21-year-old Nancy Clark, 20-year-old Eller Widener, and 28-year-old James Henderson were involved in a Halloween prank gone wrong, as have so many others. It seems that Nancy Clark walked to the door of the Lexington, Kentucky Police Headquarters, wound up like a baseball pitcher, and threw two eggs right through the door. They barely missed Magistrate Foster Beatty. Um, they all then jumped into a car and sped away, but of course, they didn't get very far before being stopped by a police cruiser. Guess you shouldn't throw things uh, at the police station. 
Anyway, all three spent about one hour in jail before being released on $200 bail. After appearing in court, the judge ordered that Nancy and Ella forfeit their $200 bonds plus an additional $19 fine. Uh, James Henderson uh, had his $200 bond returned, but he was also fined the $19. That's a total of $457 for throwing just two eggs back in 1948. That's pretty costly. And our last tidbit for today's date is September 28, 1979, where it was reported that a boy had been experiencing severe eye pain for nearly 10 weeks. So he went to see an eye specialist in Cape Town, South Africa, named Dr. Solomon Abel, who was shocked by what he found. In the boy's eye was a seedling that had germinated to a length of about an eighth of an inch under the surface of his eyeball. Now, the doctors were able to remove the seedling from his eye, and he, and he recovered. He suffered no long-term damage to his vision. Now, if you're curious and search uh, through some of the old newspaper archives, you can actually see pictures of the uh, sprout in his eye. It's a very uh, interesting story. And now the answer to today's question of the day. And I had asked you what Formica was originally sold for. The answer was for use as an electrical insulator. Formica was invented in 1912 and patented in 1913. This laminated plastic material was created as an attractive substitute for the mineral mica, hence the name, for mica. It literally was a substitute for mica. When the United States entered World War I, formica was in demand as both a radio insulator, uh, which was used by the U.S. military, and as a material to create lightweight pulleys in the aircraft industry. It wasn't until after the end of the war that the flat sheets that we know, you know so well today in our kitchens and bathrooms were introduced. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on Samuel Resnick's murder, as well as our question of the day on Formica, listening to the retro sponsor Philco Radio Tubes, and the news of the weird past tidbits on, uh, you know, that you don't own the air above your head, which I wish I did, a costly Halloween egg throwing that went wrong, and of course the seed that mysteriously sprouted in a boy's eye. Uh, if you'd like to read more true stories just like these, uh, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and, of course, from your local library. If for some crazy reason you'd like to you know, get in touch with me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Or you can visit my website uh, at uselessinformation.org. Although I will tell you, I haven't updated that in quite some time. Um, but the website is uselessinformation.org. Lastly, as always, I'd appreciate if you can log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help you know increase the number of listeners to this podcast. I am approaching, I think, about 10,000 people per uh, podcast, which is uh, quite a lot. Uh, I do apologize. I haven't really cranked out enough of these this fall. I've been quite busy. But believe it or not, I do have the next one written. So I hope, uh, you know, uh, I'll have that one recorded uh, reasonably soon and get it posted. Uh, thanks again for listening and uh, take care.